This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. So next, we're going to turn to basic accounting and tax terminology, and this is not meant to, to quiz people or to throw too many acronyms at, at um, the audience, but more just to uh, let everyone know that there are some key terms that are oftentimes thrown around, whether you're talking about financial statements or you're talking about a transaction that are important or looking at tax returns, so it's important to note. So... Some of the key ones that we see with financial statements itself are GAAP, so generally accepted accounting principles. And this is a term that we see utilized in multiple contexts. Um, it has very specific meaning to an accountant, um, someone who is a, a certified public accountant and does work um, with uh, public companies. Um, the FASB, um, which is the Financial Accounting Standards Board, issues uh, information called accounting standard, the ASC, so accounting standards committee on various topics. And those topics provide guidance on how to apply uh, different accounting standards um, from revenue to expenses, uh, assets, as well as liabilities. So Joel, I'm gonna turn this to you because some of these other references are more towards the tax, uh, tax code. So in my tax world, um, we deal with the primary sources, which would be the code and the treasury treasury regulations. The code is um, passed by Congress and the treasury regulations are issued by the uh, US Department, the Treasury Department. Uh, beneath the treasury, we have various other sources of primary uh, uh, guidance that uh, IRS issues. Uh, the first one's revenue rulings, which generally apply to very specific facts, fact situations, but they are not, taxpayer specific. It's really the IRS will give their position on a hypothetical situation. Uh, and it's up to us as tax planners, if it if it's um, advantageous to us, we want to fall within the revenue ruling. And if it's not, we find ways to not fall within the revenue ruling. Uh, that's, that's where we operate in the gray. Uh, revenue procedures are issued by Treasury, and that's how you make um, certain process changes. For instance, if you want to change a method of accounting, various items of income or deductions, uh, a revenue procedure will have those requirements. A private letter ruling is where the uh, taxpayer client uh, files a form with the IRS saying, this is my specific tax situation. We think it is uh, should uh, be ruled this way. And then the IRS will issue a letter ruling that only pertains to that client as to whether they agree or not to agree, agree with them. And finally, there's case law uh, all the way from the district uh, court, appeals court, up to the Supreme Court. And we have to follow those. Obviously, as attorneys, you should know that. We can't go against case laws if it's in, it's in our uh, district or jurisdiction. 
Uh, I put in here com commonly referenced tax forms. This is really what I deal with attorneys on a lot. Is uh, the first one is an SS4. So when a company is formed, uh, they have to obtain an employer identification number. Uh, the common question is, will the attorney apply for it? Will the accountant apply for it? Uh, it goes either way. Uh, 1120 is a C corporation return. 1120S is a pass through small business return. And finally, 1065 is a partnership return. Uh, in our practice, we see mostly uh, uh, S corporations and partnerships. And I put the K1 down there because that's what uh, is issued to the clients who, uh, that we use to pick up the activity on their personal return, which is the form 1040. The final bucket is the reorgs. Again, this is where we have our most interactions with attorneys is structuring um, various types of reorganizations with uh, so that our clients can either acquire or sell their companies. Usually when, when we mention the word reorg, it's, it's tax-free. Uh, there's a provision in the code, section 368, that will outline the various forms of tax-free uh, structures that we try to fit them in if the client wants to uh, sell his business and not pay tax on it. Uh, we're talking uh, mergers, and from there, it derives into A, A, A reorgs, B reorgs, C reorgs, and things of that nature. So I think it's important to, to note that, um, you know, oftentimes in the work that we do, particularly in disputes or, or working with attorneys on trying to assess individual situations, say, of a particular business owner, particularly when you're dealing with companies that are pass-through entities, so the 1120S or the 1065, it's also important to have access to the Schedule K-1 because that is kind of the document that tells you for this particular um, owner how much income is being attributed to that person, but also too, you can get other key data points such as distributions. So how much cash has actually been received or if dist distributions came in other forms such as through other securities, how much of that has been passed through to, to that owner during that calendar year or that fiscal year. Um, so that's a key document that we always look to that you need to have to be able to bridge between the 1065 or the 1120S as well as the 1040 as, as Joel said. And we'll go through a, uh, the K-1 later in the presentation. So another key thing to be aware of is that um, there's different methods of accounting. So there's, there's accrual basis and cash basis. Those are the two primary methods that, that you often hear of. Um, from a financial statement perspective, most financial statements are prepared on accrual basis, meaning you're trying to match the, the revenue with the costs. So if, for instance, um, I have a client right now who is acquires um, acquires artifacts over the span of time, they might be acquired in 2018, but not ultimately sold until 2021. And in their case, the, the cash outflow to acquire that piece took place in 2018, but the way that the taxes are, are presented and their financial statements are presented are on an accrual basis to try to match. So when the piece is actually sold in 2021, you match the sale with the costs that were incurred back in 2018. So while the cash may have gone out the door three years earlier, 
the actual sale and therefore the income is earned in 2021. So that accrual basis method of accounting is important to note if you if you have that and to understand why there could be differences between cash flow and actual profit and loss. And, and just in the tax world, it, uh, on the accrual basis, uh, it's fairly stated on the gap financial statements. The tax world, the accrual method of accounting actually accelerates income and defers expenses. That's why uh, there are provisions in the code that actually limit you from using the cash method and they sort of force the accrual method on, onto you. Uh, so it's not always advantageous from the tax side. So cash methods, so Joel, you can speak to this a little bit more. So, uh, so there's generally two recognized methods of reporting your income on your tax return. One is the accrual method of accounting. Um, the second is uh, the cash basis. Um, there are various rules uh, where when you're allowed to use it, when you're not allowed to use it. Uh, in the Tax Reform Act in 2017, they generally allowed cash basis if your uh, gross receipts were, I think it was 25 million or less. Um, and basically what cash method means is that when you receive the, the money, you get taxed on it. And when you spend it, actually write the check, you get the deduction. Uh, it, it is advantageous mostly because you know what most business owners know what their cash is. Uh, it's easy to plan at the end of the year um, as to what your cash basis income is. The only um, hitch is when we do planning on a cash method is if uh, the owner is paying debt down. If that is non-deductible for cash uh, purposes, you cannot deduct the principal portion of the debt. So there's phantom income and that drives some business owners a baddie because it interferes with their cash planning at the end of the, at the, end of the year. Uh, a couple of things on the cash method is that we find this a lot with um, uh, owners is that if, you know, prior to the electronic banking system, if you got a check in, you can't put it in your drawer. That's called constructive receipt. You have to recognize it. Um, when we go to the digital banking now, it's it's the unexpected uh, deposit that happens on December 31st that you had no control over that could wreck an entire years of planning. But again, you receive the cash for under the tax law and you have to pick it up as income. And a lot of times, frankly, in, in our world, in the dispute world, when there are questions about um, you know, misrepresentation of, of the books and records of a business, you end up going to the cash basis method because you can look to bank statements to see when was cash in fact received and when were bills in fact paid. We also utilize that method too a lot of times to validate whether um, the accuracy of accrual basis statements because while um, there can be significant, significant differences between the two within a short period of time, as the time continuum expands, the two of them ultimately should sync up more and more the longer that time period. And also most accountants and uh, attorneys, we share the same uh, common denominator. Most of our financials and tax returns are on the cash basis. So yes. <laughs> we have that in common. So one of the other, I think, particular areas of note are some of the differences for um, adjusting accounts at a year end for accrual basis versus cash basis. So folks will oftentimes ask us, well, how do I tell the difference between the two? So if you're on cash basis, you don't have accounts receivable. You don't have prepaid expenses, just cash goes in, cash goes out. Um, you also don't have accounts payable and accrued expenses on the liability side. So, um, and, and this is where life gets a little bit confusing because we do have some clients who are kind of stuck in between the cat, the true 
uh, pure cash basis uh, payer versus those who are accrual, accrual basis 100%. Um, sometimes you'll see modified cash as a third method of accounting. Correct. That means you've done something wrong for two years in a row. And now that's been <laughs> that you under the tax lawyer, that is now your method of accounting and you cannot change it. So if you do something wrong two years in a row, you have adopted that method. Do we have a few clients that we have a few clients that have done that? Okay. So can you cover then for the for the audience as to what are the pros and cons of each method? So generally, um, if, if you can't qualify for the cash method of accounting because you don't meet the requirements, um, you are on the accrual basis financials. Uh, we see this a lot with uh, manufacturers, dis uh, distributors, um, tech companies. Uh, they are more concerned with their uh, um, investor reporting. So their tax return will match the uh, financial statements. They'll be on the accrual basis of, of um, financial. So it's easy for us to prepare the return because we generally have an audited financial statement. They generally will agree. There will be some differences, though, um, between accrual for financial and accrual for tax. There are some provisions that allow us to defer um, revenue uh, different than what we do on the accrual method, uh, for instance, on prepayments for contracts, things like that. Um, on income tax returns on the cash basis, generally this is the professional services um, industry. This is architects, engineers, accountants, lawyers, uh, where we convert uh, internally, if you if you have an accrual basis financial that you're, you're showing to your partners, because that tracks the true performance of the company. On the tax return, we will then convert that to a cash basis by reversing receivables, reversing payables, and that will come up with your cash basis financial. Uh, which is easier for, I think, for some people to know because they know how much they collect and they know how much they spend. Uh, some of the differences is if um, you know you purchase a piece of uh, machinery, the tax code allows you to expense it in the year of purchase. So we can accelerate the depreciation in year one. However, knowing that in year two, um, you're giving up that depreciation and your, your cash basis profit will be higher at that time. Um, these differences between uh, cash basis and accrual are reflected on what's known as the Schedule M1 or M3 on the tax return. And basically what that schedule does is it takes your accrual method financial statement and, and shows you the adjustments to get to a tax basis number in which um, the shareholders and partners are paying tax on. And oftentimes we'll we'll look at the M1, Schedule M1, to see can we sync up uh tax basis with accrual basis. Cause it, again, it's another data point to help us validate the accuracy of the financial statements. Um, when that section is not filled in by the tax accountant, it usually raises not a red flag, but at least it, it tells us that we need to ask further questions on that point. So one of the key questions that we always get is where does all this data come from? Um, because a tax return or financial statements don't exist automatically on their own. Um, one needs to look at underlying uh, books and records. You know, financial statements and tax returns, in my mind, are kind of like the tip of the iceberg, and there's a lot more beneath it that allows you to get up to that summary level information. So things such as um, job cost reports, inventory reports help you understand better what inventory or production are. Um, you can look at uh, procurement records, allocations, uh, payable records to see what your expenses are. 
And then with respect to revenue or income, one can look at um, individual invoices, receivable statements, um, other billing statements to um, obtain that information. But you can drill down even further. And so this um, graphic depicts that, you know, there are so many different types of uh, books and records that that filter into ultimately the financial statements. So literally, you know, there have been times where we've had to reconstruct uh, financial statements for companies or, or the financial statements didn't even exist in the first place. So you look at a check register, you look at um, invoices and bills that have been uh, paid, look at deposits, look at bank statements to then be able to create a general ledger um, sales journal, payroll records, and the like. And that brings you up to trial balances that are oftentimes when working with accountants, you know, adjustments will be made. For instance, on depreciation always seems to be a key one as to how much depreciation can be taken. And ultimately that filters up to uh, the financial statements or the tax return, depending upon what what and, you're doing. And if you look at this slide, this is really QuickBooks, to be honest with you, for those of you who operate the QuickBooks for your farms, Book, this this is what QuickBooks is doing. It, this is what it's underlying its um, process. You put the information in the QuickBooks, it calculates it, you make the adjustments, and then you produce financial statements for the accountant. That that's really what this slide is illustrating. So going back to gaps, so generally accepted accounting principles. So financial statements are oftentimes um, reported in accordance with GAAP. You'll see that language in, in the accountant's letter. Um, so it's an important thing to look for and we'll, we'll talk further about it. Um, it's important to note GAAP has been around for many, many years. It was codified in 2009 um, where the current structure of how we look at GAAP, how it's um, segmented and organized is, is now in existence over the last, call it 14 years. A lot of times um, professionals think that GAAP relates solely to publicly traded companies. It does not. Um, GAAP is utilized in financial reporting, whether you're talking about audited statements or reviewed statements. So oftentimes banks will require uh, companies to have their financial statements either audited or reviewed. And we'll speak more to that um, further on. And so having your statements presented in accordance with GAAP is, is an important data point oftentimes for, for your banking relationships, sometimes for your investors uh, as well. And it allows a, a level of consistency. So that way um, a, a debt holder or um, an equity holder in a company or, or even management are able to compare the financial statements of the subject company to other comparable companies in the industry. It's also important if you have clients that have closely held businesses and they, they, they tell you that they're thinking of selling in a couple of years and, and their financial statements are out of QuickBooks, they're not audited, that they would want to produce a history of audited financial statements because that helps the deal uh, and it gives confidence to the other side that the um, financial information they're looking at is reliable. Yeah, and actually, Joel and I had a, a scenario uh, come up more recently with uh, a business owner, closely held business, a, a business that's been operational for uh, decades at this point. They went to go get additional uh, financing for a, a new project, and 
they only provide, so they have QuickBooks files. Um, so compiled financial statements, which is um, not, um, there's no level of assurance imposed upon um, compilations. So they have compiled financial statements and then they have tax returns. And we're in right now this odd window of time of where the tax returns are not complete for 2022, but the business is seeking financing. So we provided um, tax returns to the bank as well as uh, profit and loss statements, as well as balance sheets out of QuickBooks to the banking institution. And the bank is squawking because they wanna see audited financial statements. Um, so we've had to work through with the bank to find a way because an audit couldn't be conducted at this point in time in the time period that they're requesting um, and nor will the tax returns be completed in a uh, timely fashion for this transaction that they're trying to um, trying to um, work through at this point in time. So I, I think Joel is right that you know if if you foresee a, a business owner, one of your clients who's eyeing towards some sort of liquidation event, making sure that um, you up the ante on QuickBooks is always a key thing to do with with enough runway. And just a, a quick point on what Tim was saying, because this, this comes up all the time. It was actually the client that provided the financial statements to the bank. We we cannot print out financial statements as an accounting firm for our client and give it to a third party. Um, that triggers a financial reporting requirement. And that, that's part of the issues that there was confusion because bankers, bankers have a view of the world and it doesn't necessarily sync up with accounting. So that's where a lot of the questions arise, and that's where we came in and tried to help resolve the issue. So again, um, with respect to the GAP framework, um, it is important um, for any reader of financial statements to see on, under what basis are the financial statements being prepared? Is it a cool? Is it cash basis? Sometimes you'll see this um, other and another basis which will be articulated in the financial statements. It's important to notice note that um, financial statements are there to provide transparency, to allow you to know what income is being recognized, how it's being recognized, you know, under which basis, um, how measurement of or valuation of the item is, is being conducted. But ultimately, um, it is to provide disclosure about the operations and the financial wherewithal of of the company. So even within GAP, much like uh, I'm sure in the legal field, there's a hierarchy as to what is authoritative and non-authoritative guidance, um, but guidance nonetheless is, is always helpful. So the Financial Accounting Standards Board, as well as the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, will issue guidance on various topics. You'll often, though, hear about accountants. I know that I'm always um, speaking like a broken record with attorneys about the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. That's the AICPA. The AICPA will issue um, guidance, although it's non-authoritative in many cases, uh, statements of position on topics. But some of that guidance will be very specific and you can align it more so with the specific fact pattern of the, the matter that you have at hand. Um, there are other uh, emerging issues task force um, pronouncements as well as other industry guide 
that one can can look to. Um, so it's important to note within the hierarchy where you are, um, depending upon what point you're you're working to support. So next, we're going to turn to accountants' reports and legal letters, um, which is another key topic. So we're going to speak to first the audit. So as we had described before, there's the audit, the review, and then there's uh, compiled financial statements. So an audit is conducted in accordance with GAS. So as opposed to GAP, generally accounted, um, generally accepted accounting principles, uh, GAS is generally accepted audit standards, auditing standards. Um, what the purpose of an audit is, is to express an opinion about compliance with generally accepted accounting principles, so GAP. It's also important as part of the audit for the auditor to gain an understanding of internal controls, and we'll speak more to what internal controls mean. There is limited responsibility in terms of detection of fraud, and this is another key um, point, and, and I think, frankly, a misunderstanding um, oftentimes in, in the public view as to um, is it the auditor's responsibility to detect fraud? And an auditor must, in fact, be independent in performing their work. So the independent auditor's report, this is a report that gets issued along with the financial statements. So the balance sheet, income statement, statement of cash flows and the like. There are some key things within the letter that are important um, as a reader of financial statements to note. Um, first and foremost is um, the time period is a key, so a, a key element. So what time period is, is being um, audited? The first sentence within the letter will let you know, is an audit being conducted or a review? It's also important to note that management is ultimately responsible for the preparation and presentation of the financial statements. So oftentimes we will get representations from management on certain key um, assumptions or how data is presented um, comes from management. The, uh, and then it also, this letter will discuss the auditor's responsibility, which is to express an opinion on the financial statements based on the audit. So it is ultimately um, the auditor is performing the audit to obtain a reasonable assurance about whether the financial statements are free from material misstatement. That does not mean that they're is a guarantee that the financial statements are free of material misstatement. And we oftentimes have to have conversations with uh, clients that um, about what an audit does or does not do. And I think um, even in the situation that we had with um, the bank more recently, uh, Joel and I, the banker kept saying, well, we need to get an audit done. Anything As if anything that came out of from Joel or I was an audit, and it absolutely was not. Neither one of us perform audits. <laughs> Some of our colleagues do, but we do not. Um, however, you know, auditors do come across um, evidence of of fraud in in performing their work, and they will act upon it when if there are indicia of fraud. Um, audits are framed to perform procedures to obtain evidence about the amounts and the disclosures within financial statements. So that's another key aspect of this, but a lot of this is based upon judgment, assessing risk and um, trying to assess whether or not fraud or error 
is is occurring. So just um, to tack on something Kim said, normally everybody has seen audited financial reports, but sometimes they have they take on a life of their own. So knowing what's going on right now in the banking industry, um, there is a heightened um, uh, attention being paid, for instance, to clients who've had overexposed deposits with certain banks, which we won't name. That will impact the, the type of audit opinion that would be issued now. So this is causing some um, agita and, and angst right now with the clients. This also reared its head back in 2008. So th th this the audit report and, the, and what type of opinions expressed on it bubbles up uh, through the economy during, see, during key events that have happened over the last 20 years. Right. Um, yeah, so uninsured deposits are a key topic right now that our auditors from firms, uh, all of our colleagues across the industry are, are contending with as we speak. Um, Again, some of the key phraseologies to look for, um, looking at accounting estimates, accounting policies, all of that is articulated um, in the financial statements taken as a whole. Um, and ultimately the intent is, is to express an opinion on the financial statements in all material respects and whether or not they are in accordance with um, auditing or accounting principles uh, generally accepted in the United States, which is GAAP. Um, the review. So the review is, um, I don't want to necessarily call it the next step down, but there is, um, the procedures are, are, are different. So we, we oftentimes find reviewed statements are required, um, oftentimes from the financing um, agent in lieu of having a full audit performed. Um, so this is conducted, reviews are conducted within accordance with um, statements on standards for accounting and review services. There's limited assurance. Um, understanding of the internal control system is not required. So that's a key differentiator between audits and reviews. Um, there is no responsibility to detect fraud unless the accountant becomes aware of it. But again, um, because there is limited assurance, the auditor or the reviewer um, has to be an independent. So uh, we had a situation yesterday where uh, a new client uh, purchased a business and they needed to report to management. And the controller, the CFO, basically said that because of the transaction that we're just ramping up, that they were not they were unauditable because they didn't have the internal control systems in place yet. Revenue recognition was an issue. They want to get to an audit the following year. So we recommended doing a review. That way there's some assurance given to management uh, on the set of financials and they'll work towards an audit going forward. So it's not necessarily um, a review is bad. Um, it's just sometimes it's, it can't be done for the client, but they will work towards an audit in the future year. Right. And I don't mean to imply that a review is, is bad. Sometimes a, a banking institution may be comfortable enough with the organization that a review is sufficient for them to be able to assess um, the financial position and wherewithal of, of the company and allow them sufficient information for them to be able to assess uh, covenants for, for loans. And basically, just from, from our perspective, an audit is more expensive than a review. Yes. And the clients know that. So if they can get away with a review, they will do a review. Right. So a review statement, as you'll find at the, the top sentence of um, the review report, you'll it'll say 
a review has um, been conducted, again, for a very specific time period. The fact that a review um, addresses uh, or it applies specific analytical procedures to the financial data and inquiries are made of company management. Um, it's also important to note oftentimes with, you'll hear this with larger uh, public companies, an annual audit will be conducted, but a re review will be done for quarter one, quarter two, and quarter three. So sometimes you'll hear companies have a combination of both audits and reviews. Um, audits are typically done for the annual time period. Um, so the procedures are not as um, fulsome as they would be in an audit which is therefore why um, one does not um, obtain uh, assurance. You have limited assurance here with respect to reviews. And you'll see also too in the accountant's conclusion that um, the language is different. And in this case, um, for instance, we are not aware of any material modifications that should be made to the accompanying financial statements for them to be in accordance with, the, with, in accordance with GAAP. Okay, the third um, type of statement that we're gonna turn to is the compilation. So compilations oftentimes, um, as Joel said, it will be data that comes out of, uh, is extracted from QuickBooks um, or whichever accounting program uh, the client utilizes. A compilation is also too governed by, um, by SARS. Um, the Financial statements, its presentation, and the information that is contained therein is a representation of management. There is absolutely no assurance provided with respect to a compilation, um, which is why in, in our case with the compilation and the tax returns, why I think the bank was struggling with going through the underwriting process, particularly in light of what's going on right now with in, in banking. Um, they were trying to figure out how to overcome the fact that there is no assurance. Um, understanding of internal uh, control systems are not required. Um, again, there's no responsibility on the accountant's part to detect fraud unless they become aware of fraud. Um, and independence is not required in this circumstance. Um, footnote disclosures are, are oftentimes excluded, um, although at times you do see footnote disclosures in compilations, but compilations uh, definitely do not have the same form and structure as that of a review or an audit. Um, as you can see from the presentation here of a compilation letter, the letter is much shorter. Um, there are fewer disclosures here, and but it's important that it will very much call out um, that the financial statements are not designed for those who are informed about such matters with respect to the uh, with respect to the compiled statements. Um, management may or may not, in this particular case, they've elected to omit substantial disclosures um, that would be, in fact, required by GAAP. Okay. 